Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Sherry Jones on her Women's Prize shortlisted debut novel, How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House. Plus Kate Moss on the Women's Prize Trust's Discoveries Programme. Sherry Jones was born in Barbados. She is a graduate of the MA Writing Programme at Sheffield Hallam University, where she won both the Archie Markham Award and the A.M. Heath Prize. In 2015, she was also awarded a full fellowship from the Vernon Studio Centre. And How the One-Armed Sister Swept Her House which we're going to be talking about today, is both her first novel and has recently been shortlisted for the 2021 Women's Prize. Sherry, welcome to Little Atoms. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. First of all, tell us how you would describe the novel. Um, so How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House is a novel about a woman who works on the beach in Barbados as a hair braider. And it's a little bit about the summer of 1984 when she gives birth to her first child. On the same night of her baby's birth, there is a murder, the murder of a wealthy tourist a little further up along the beach where she lives. And the novel really is about how the those two events are connected. But along the way, we examine lots of things, including, you know, issues of poverty, class and race in Barbados. Um, And I think there's also a really touching love story that happens between the main character and one of the other characters. So in a nutshell, that's what I'd say the novel is about. And let's get straight into the title then, because the title, How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House, is not what the story is about beyond the metaphorical use of that. This is a fable that is told in the prologue of the story by Stella Lala, the main character's grandmother, Wilma, to basically keep her on the straight and narrow. So is this a real Barbadian story? So actually it isn't, and in, a, in another way it is. So I know that sounds a little strange. There is no actual myth about the one-armed sister, about two sisters who go into a tunnel, um, one of whom goes into the tunnel, sorry, and is confronted by a monster. That specific tale um, is not told in Barbados. That was made up for the book. But we do have a tradition in Barbados of telling children stories about these fantastical 
scary characters. And there is the tradition of telling these tales to kind of scare children um, and younger people away from, from activities that we might consider to be dangerous or bad. So the tradition of telling that type of story for that purpose is very much alive and well in Barbados, but certainly that specific story doesn't currently form part of our, our culture and tradition now. Well, maybe it will now. <laughs> yes, maybe, perhaps. <laughs> um, so Baxter's Beach, the place where the story is set around, is a fictional creation as well. But tell us, is there somewhere it's based on? Yes, so Baxter's Beach is actually a mixture of a number of actual beaches in Barbados. And the reason that, you know, it's a, it's a fictional beach and not an actual beach from here is because there is no one beach that I'm aware of that has all the characteristics that Baxter's Beach has in the book. So for example, Baxter's Beach has, there's a little remnant of a fishing village that's very close by. There's, you know, Lala and Aiden's living quarters, which is very sort of poor, um, distressed type of environment. Then there is also the craggy um, portion of the beach where the luxury villas are that the wealthy tourists inhabit. And then there's also a wonderful calm part for bathing. So we do have beaches in Barbados that have you know, one, sometimes two, maybe even three of those characteristics. But I think all of them together, I certainly don't know of any one beach that does all of that. And so Baxter's Beach is fictional. Having said that, Baxter's is very much a Bajan um, place name. There's a Baxter's Road in Barbados, in, in town, what we would call town, where you know, all this wonderful fried fish and local food is sold to tourists and locals alike at night. It's a very active area. So that's Baxter's Road. And then there's also a Baxter's Village in St. Andrew. But yes, there is no actual Baxter's Beach in Barbados. And as you mentioned about the the fable about the one-armed sister, that she's dragged into a tunnel by a monster. And in the world of the book, at least, there are these tunnels literally exist. There is the remnants of an old colonial era fort and tunnels that have been carved underneath it. So is this a, a real place? <laughs> so yes, they are. The tunnels and the caves in the novel are inspired by real places in Barbados. So there is the UNESCO heritage site, um, the garrison tunnels that we have in St. Michael. And I actually toured the garrison tunnels with my daughter. Um, I think that was in 2017, probably 20, 2017 or very early 2018. And those tunnels then made their, you know, I then sort of came up with the tunnels that form part of the, of the novel. But yeah, so the, the tunnels and caves are based on the garrison tunnels as well as a number of caves that form part of our topography here in Barbados. So we have Harrison's Cave, we have the Animal Flower Cave, and there are lots of caves that form part of, you know, our physical environment that are unexplored, um, certainly by the majority. But yes, yeah, so the tunnels and caves are actually based on local places. <laughs> 
The book is set, as you said, in 1984, though there are also flashbacks to earlier times. But in the main, the action is set in, in 1984. Tell us why you chose that time. That was a little little indulgent on my part, I think. Um, so the first thing is that when the character of Lala came to me, that first night that she spoke to me and I knew I was going to be writing what I thought at this time was a story about her short story, I realized that she was a hair braider. And I remember hair braiders being a feature of the local beachscape on the beach of, you know, my very early early adolescence, I would say. So in 1984, I would have been 10 going on 11, not to age myself, but that's the truth. So I would have been 10, 11. And I think I was just sort of coming into an awareness of myself and who I was. And I just remember the 80s with such fondness. So first, it was the fact that I remember going to the beach around that time and that the hair braiders were very much a part of the local beachscape. So that was the first reason. But quite apart from that, I mean, I just love the 80s. Like the decade of the 80s just meant so much to me. And there were so many elements of my childhood Um, my adolescence, you know, being a teenager that are associated with things from the 80s that were no longer here. And that it was just such a pleasure to be able to recreate and sort of live through again. So I mean, things like the Hunza dresses and um, going to the cinema at the Globe Cinema and sitting in the balcony and throwing popcorn into the pit. Um, String bags. String bags were like everywhere in the 80s. You don't see them now at all. That's a big thing for me. And there were so many elements of the 1980s, even even in terms of the braiding of the hair and putting beads at the end. That was really, that was like the stylish thing to do with your hair then. And a lot of local hair braiders would have been braiding on the beach for tourists in 1984. So yes, it was just, it was absolutely a pleasure for me to be able to revisit that time. I want to talk in more detail about a number of the characters. This book has a uh, a large cast of characters. And you've just mentioned that the book started off when Lala first came to you. You envisaged, I guess, a short story. Lala is... I'd say the main character of the story, but the story is told from the perspective of multiple characters. And so I wanted to talk about, first of all, I guess, why multiple characters? But it, to do that, let's talk about, I guess, how those how those characters came together, how the book came together over those multiple characters. I think in Barbados, I'm part of my, my culture as a Bajan and as a Caribbean person, oral storytelling is very much a part of it. That's just how we live, how we express ourselves, you know, and and they're very, to me, it's very interesting um, how we do that. And I think you probably only, I certainly probably only recognize certain aspects of that when I went somewhere else and lived for a while and, and, and sort of felt the absence of it. So locally, when we're telling a story, you know, we kind of have a tendency to meander a bit. So I would say, okay, let me tell you about Junie from down the road. You don't know Junie? Junie, the one that married to Tom. You know Tom? Well, Tom, his father used to work at the plantation back in the day, and he used to drive it. You know, and we go ahead that way. So it's, it's like in order for us to tell you 
Junie's story properly, we need to tell you about Tom because she's Tom's wife and there's a relationship there. We want you to, to get the full context. That's kind of how we tell our story. So there was a part of me that wanted to tell this story in the same way, just from that perspective. Now, in addition to that, I felt that one of the themes that I explored in the novel was, you know, the intergenerational nature of violence, how our approaches to violence, our expressions of violence, and even our expressions of love are passed down through generations. So there's this kind of common understanding of certain things that we get you know we absorb it by osmosis and it goes across the generations and for me in order to be able to adequately explain for example why Lala makes the choices that she's made or why she finds herself in the circumstances that she's in I needed to explain a little bit about the mother and grandmother who would have assisted in shaping her as a person So you need to understand if Lala is in a relationship with an abusive husband and chooses not to leave, some of us reading might think, well, why doesn't she just leave? I mean, this is, this is so simple, just leave, you know? Um, But I think if we understand a little better, some, the attitudes and the approaches of some of the women who would have shaped Lala, then we understand perhaps how certain attitudes might have passed down. And then I think we get to understand Lala a lot better. So for me, I think that was part of the reason why they were a number of characters. And, you know, when I started the novel, I started it just, you know, in the first person, Lala's point of view, she was the narrator. Um, that obviously posed some some difficulties because of our circumstances. I just didn't feel she had the agency even to tell her own story or to tell it in a way that the reader could trust and understand. So that required a widening of perspectives. But also I think in order to properly examine any subject, we need to look at it you know, from a number of different perspectives. And I think that's part of the reason why I introduce a number of characters. They do contribute to the action, but it was really important to show those characters in their complexity as human beings because human beings are complex and therefore characters need to be also. And it was really important to me that the reader come away with an understanding of these people and what might have shaped them and therefore why they may collide in some of the ways that they do. And well, that goes for all of the main characters that, you know, we see various chapters from their perspectives. But this book is also full of incredibly vivid, brilliantly drawn minor characters that might even appear for a, a paragraph or two. And I'm thinking here of perhaps the Queen of Sheba, a notorious <laughs> local sex worker, or, yeah. or some of Aiden's soldiers, uh, shot or, yeah. or rats. Yeah. Just leap off the page, even though we might only see them once. And these do not feel like the characters of a debut novel. Tell us something about creating these characters. Uh, You know, for me, these characters, you know, since I was a child, you know, I've lived a lot in my own imagination. And I think that's helped me quite a bit with my story writing. So 
when Lala's character came to me, for example, and she started to present this story, she actually told me the story of the tussle between her and Aiden for baby. And we kind of know how that ends. That was a really compelling introduction to her and sort of made me want to understand more about her more about Aiden and more about some of the other people that they would have met and interacted with over time. I think the Queen of Sheba serves a number of purposes in the book, even though she is a minor character. She is an example of a woman trying to exercise a certain level of agency you know, over her own body, certainly in terms of her voice. You know, she's very feisty. She kind of speaks up for herself, or at least that's what we think. But then, of course, we see how even she is constrained in certain ways. So I think for me, the minor characters served, you know, very, very specific and distinct purposes. And I just, you know, I like when I read about a character that I can see that person, I can hear them speaking. I know exactly what they would say in another situation. And my imagination can run away with that. So I tend to try to write the same types of characters that I would want to read. I want to I want that after I've read about that character, I know exactly who they are. I can kind of guess what their choices would be, you know, without actually being told. You know, my mind does the rest. So when that's well done for me as a reader, you know, I am fully immersed in that story and I care about the characters. And I wanted to do that for my own readers as well. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Sherry Jones and we're talking about her debut novel, How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House. Sherry, I said I wanted to talk about some of the characters in a little bit more detail. So we'll start with Lala. As you said, we find her in this violent, destructive relationship with a man that one might imagine she could leave. But we also see her wider family and her mother, Esme, who is present in the story, but is dead at the start of the story. Um, Her grandmother, Wilma, her... I don't want to give too much away by saying what role he plays, <laughs> but this um, absolutely wild character, Carson, who is terrifying, um, who is her grandmother Wilma's husband. Tell us something about, about Lala's background, some of these people. Lala's mother has died, and one of the key things for her in the novel is the whole concept of love, And for Lala, she associates love with the singing of her name, the way that her mother sang it. And, you know, in sort of coming up with that, I thought that's one of the earliest expressions of love that anybody will, you know, will feel or experience that sort of love from a mother, the pet name or, you know, the lullaby that's sung or whatever. So, you know, Lala's character is very much in search of that love. And I think... 
that is why she gets into some of the issues that she does because she's living with her grandmother um, after her mother's death and her grandmother's husband. And she goes through some really traumatic experiences at the hands of her grandmother and her husband. And I think that shapes Lala to a certain extent because I think it's clear to her or she feels that she's not getting that level of love and affection at home. And therefore, I think that's part of the reason why she goes searching for it in Aiden, her husband, who just happens to take the time and make the effort to sing her name in just the way her mother did. So, you know, I think Lala, like most people in the world, is looking for love. Unfortunately, she's also running away from a a bad situation. And I think as with anybody who's running away from something, I think we focus a lot on what we're running away from and not necessarily what we're running into And therefore, that leads to a lot of the problems that she has to to grapple with in the novel. So, yes, she ends up married to Aiden. Um, They have a daughter. And I think the birth of her daughter is the catalyst for change in Lala's life. And I think that happens in the novel just as it does in real life for women in similar circumstances. Um, so the birth of this of this daughter, this this much beloved baby, sort of starts a whole series of events in motion, and that that those events lead to Lala's development and her eventual escape from those circumstances. And Lala's story is, is contrasted with the throughout the book in, with the experiences of a woman, Mira Wallen, who is the um, the widow of Peter Wallen, a rich white tourist with a, a second home in the Barbados, who has been murdered in a robbery at the beginning of the book. But Mira herself then is is found in a a rather precarious position. She is well, she's referred to by the islanders as a white woman, but she's she's a mixed race woman. Um, And her mother, her ancestors are an interesting group of people. Tell us who they were. There is a community in Barbados known as the Red Legs of Barbados. Um, And I think if you, you know, anybody who's interested can Google that and get and find out more about the community. But what I will tell you is that the community is essentially made up of the descendants of Irish and Scottish persons who were brought to Barbados as indentured labor several, you know, hundred years ago. And what happened was this community was neither accepted by the minority Caucasian planter class, nor the majority Afro-Barbadian group. They form the majority of the population. So they kind of inhabit a kind of marginal, there's a marginal existence because in Barbados, as in many islands of the Caribbean, certainly for a very long, long um, section of our history, color and class were intertwined. So there was an expectation or an understanding that the lighter um, your skin tone, um, it would be assumed that your origins would be, you know, from what people would call a higher class. I mean, I stumble even, even to express it, but that really is what it is. 
And so the red leg community have the appearance of what used to be the Caucasian planter class, but really lived in very poor, very deprived circumstances, a very isolated community. Um, and that persists to some extent up to today. So Nero really isn't in that much of a different position to say um, Lala or even the Queen of Sheba. And she similarly tries to escape her circumstances. And she does take a similar route to the Queen of Sheba, but it just, you know, it has a different patina um, in terms of how she approaches it. So she's successful in that regard. And she marries a wealthy man and becomes part of a different type of society in the UK and then is able to come back to Barbados and, you know, inhabit one of these luxury mansions on the beach. I think for Mira, I think her lesson is a little is a little different because I think Nero actually probably wasn't really looking for love, except to the extent that she associated provision, financial provision with love because of, of her circumstances with her own father. But I think for Mira, she wasn't actually looking for love in Peter Whelan. And for me, that is one of the more beautiful and more tragic aspects of her life because I think she really recognizes the love and care that Peter Whelan has for her after he's murdered and there is something very very touching very sad about that but it's also I think a wonderful opportunity to explore life from her perspective so yes I'm, I've gone a little bit much into Mira I think but the red light community does exist in Barbados up to today and yeah that's that community that's that's where the origin for Mira in the novel and Aidan who is who is Lala's husband um he charms her when they first meet and then turns out to be a violent sociopath basically <laughs> there's, there's um you know we we get to see some of Aidan's background you know and he's I say a violent sociopath but he's a you know he's a fully rounded character in the novel and we get some sort of look into what might have made him the way he is yeah. um but but you know in terms of talking about Aiden I wanted to talk again a little bit about your depiction of domestic violence in the book as you said you know we've said a couple of times that people might look at Lala's situation and wonder why she doesn't just leave but there is a point where she says that she doesn't really see the point of leaving yeah. this man yeah. for another man who is also going to beat her because it seems uh, like masculinity is is depicted in such a way that you know domestic violence is just something that's interweaved into society and there's nothing they can do about it i do think there is there is or there was from much of our history um an understanding of a particular ideal as it relates to the performance of gender and certainly for men that would have included the ability to you know, almost train a wife. So, you know, uh, physical violence towards female in a relationship is not necessarily frowned upon or, or it is not something that is understood as being totally abhorrent. There are limits in terms of, you know, the extent to which this violence might occur. 
So it's a very interesting um, dynamic, but that is part of our culture. That has been part of our culture for a long time. You know, how violence comes about, how it's expressed and how we understand it and how much we are willing or able to tolerate it, you know, and the extent to which we might even blame women who find themselves victim to these particular circumstances. So there is a, a scene in the book, for example, when Esme, and that's Lala's mom, when Lala's very young, she sort of flees a man that she later marries, and she goes to her mother's house and Wilma, her mother, kind of says to her, well, you know, what are you doing here? What do you want? It's kind of the understanding is, okay, you're married and this is what happens. It's part of married life or, or marriage. So, you know, what are you kind of running here for? And eventually she goes back home. There's also a sense of victim blaming. It's kind of like, well, you know, the man is like that. Why are you why are you even complaining? So I think there is that expectation. And I think it is also supported and reinforced by women. And to me, that's one of the most interesting things about it, that some women will actually reinforce the perpetration of violence against women because of their own attitudes to violence and their own understanding of what is acceptable and not within the parameters of an intimate um, relationship. So, you know, in the Caribbean, we do have a problem with domestic violence. And I think the UN Commissioner for Human Rights did say a couple years back um, that, you know, while this is something that happens all over the world, it seemed to be particularly prevalent in the Caribbean. And I think it is a, a subject that is ripe for discussion and exploration and understanding. It's something that we need to look at very carefully. And I think one of the ways in which we can do that is through storytelling. You know, a story is a kind of a safe space to examine a difficult topic. And I certainly hope that How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House provides that safe space for people to look at domestic violence and to examine their own attitudes individually and our attitudes, you know, collectively as a society um, and as a region about, about intimate partner violence. So, yeah, I think that was, it was really important to me to be able to look at some of the attitudes to domestic violence. Um, although I would not say that I sort of set out to write a book about domestic violence because I, I don't write to theme. I don't kind of sit down and say, let me write a book about, you know, domestic violence today. It's, it doesn't happen like that at all. But based on the story that I received, I'm really thankful for the fact that I got the opportunity to explore this topic in this way. And just one other character, that's Tone or Roberts, the... Um, oh, my favourite. <laughs> fascinating. And he's um, ostensibly one of... Aiden's right-hand men. Through him, we see uh, another sort of aspect of the exploitation of the island by rich foreigners via the... Um, he's a sex worker, basically. Um, part of the time seems... He seems to present himself as as somebody who has autonomy over what he is doing. We find out later on that maybe, you know, 
maybe that's not necessarily the case. But yeah, let's let's just talk about the existence of this of this world of rich sex tourists. So, I mean, this is something I remember when I first wrote the, when I first, when the, the novel was first reviewed, first released, one of the early reviewers kind of, she expressed a little bit of, you know, oh my gosh, and, you know, there's the trope of the Rasta gigolo on the beach, you know, she was kind of a little put off by that, but the fact is, certainly at the time when the book was written, that was a feature of the beachscape. And everybody, you know, lots of people in Barbados, there is that understanding of, you know, there are some males who would work on the beach doing various things. They might be renting beach chairs, you know, hustling jet skis, offering jewelry, coconut water. But there are several um, men who would also be offering sex for sale to tourist women. And that is a reality. And I think for Tone, because, you know, his sex work is almost seasonal, but it is a way to earn money and to try to carve out an existence for himself that is hopefully a little better than that his mom endures, you know, and the rest of his family. But Tone does a number of things. So, yes, he is a sex worker. Um, but Tone is just, you know, he's my favorite character. He is such a resilient, such a strong, such a, a tender man, person, human. Um, and that in spite of some very difficult circumstances that he also would have endured. So to me, Tone is like that glimmer of hope that... You know, you can't escape the effects of violence once you've been a victim of it. But I think Tone demonstrates an intention and awareness and an effort to make sure that the violence kind of stops with him. And it's, it's interesting to me that we do get that from, from a male, from a male perspective in the novel. Um, I don't know... I certainly am not aware of many Caribbean novels that have been written from the perspective of that character, that man who hustles on the beach. And it was a joy for me to learn about his humanity. But quite apart from that, the fact that, you know, he transcended a lot of the issues that other characters struggle with in the novel. So even in the end, I think that was that was, it was kind of deliberate for me because there is a scene at the end that, um, without giving too much away, when Tone is involved in a violent encounter. And those listening who would have read the book would be aware of what I'm talking about right at the end. But it was like, I could not bring myself to have Tone actually positively, physically kill this other character. It was like, to me, that was just so out of character for him. It was like he almost had to do it by omission in terms of how this other character dies. So Tone kind of leads him to a particular point and it is that other character's own sort of betrayal, his trickery, that in a very real sense at that point leads to his death. So, and, and for me, that was deliberate because I just couldn't see Tone doing it, not, not to this other character. So Tone is one of my favorite characters because of everything 
that he has managed to overcome. And then because of the sacrifice that he makes at the end for the woman that he loves, I think he's just a beautiful person. It's sad that they perhaps don't have the ending that a lot of readers might have hoped for them. But, you know, you never know, maybe at some point in the future after we leave them. But I think the sacrifice that he makes for love is also really beautiful. To finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit? I am going to read, since we were talking, just talking about tone and Lala, I'm going to read from chapter 20. And basically, this is the part of the novel where Lala's baby has died and a policeman is investigating the circumstances of baby's death and therefore questioning um, Lala about it and so he meets her on the beach as she is braiding hair for a client and this chapter is written mostly from the perspective of the village um, the people in the village and is so written in the first person plural so that was also um, interesting and for me appropriate for this chapter so I'll just read a bit of it chapter 20 Lala 20th August 1984. If we were to look for Lala, and if we were to find her on the flank of Baxter's Beach, knuckle deep in the hair of a stranger, if we were to walk up to her and ask her whether she knows the frowsy beach bum, the one at whom our island women chooks, the one the memory of whom makes some tourist women breathe faster. We would notice first how she keeps her gaze on the head in front of her when she queries, who? As if she is deliberately avoiding our eyes. Her fingers would not slow down, not then. They would keep weaving hair at a speed that would seem incapable of measurement. Over, under, over, under, over, under, over, under, over. We might describe Robert Paris, also known as Tone, first in physical terms, because his form, rusty shoulder length locks, average height, slim build, sinewy and strong, is what is first obvious to anyone who looks at him. We would explain that we're talking about the one whose toenails are washed white as surf, whose skin is salted with the fine white dust of a living maid on the beach. We would explain that the hair on his head and hands has become the gold of the sun, so that, like the sun, we would not see it if we look at him straight on. When Lala still feigns ignorance of his acquaintance, we could refer to his quirks, the sharp tooth necklace he wears around his neck, and kisses before he ventures into the water. The way he slaps the surface of the sea with his jet ski so that the older swimmers startle and the younger ones spit obscenities. The tendency he has to take the unruly locks at the crown of his head and squeeze them to get rid of the salt water while bent over at the waist. And because Robert Paris is a subject that must be avoided at all costs, we would hear Lala again say, who? Even as her fingers slow their speed on the hair in front of her. Over, under, over, under, over, under, stop. 
And it is only after she realizes that we will keep asking until she answers. After we have described him in such a way that it would be more suspicious if she said she did not know him, that we would find the small, brittle smile of recognition. Oh, Tone, Lala would say, yes, yes, I know him. And her hands would start to trip over themselves to drop the silken strands of flaxen hair before her so that she will have to start the cornrow all over again. Over, stop, under, stop, over, stop, under, stop, over, under, over, under, stop. If we were to push further to ask how she knows him, her eyes would fall from the hair in which she has tangled her fingers and land on her feet, where a fly would be broaching the sticky sweet memory of a drop of snow cone dried on her toe. And her eyes would stay there while we reassure the tourist between Lala's legs. The tourist would now be closing her book, gathering her towel, saying she could come back later when we are done, hesitating with a half-done head when we tell her, it is okay, she can stay. This will only take a few minutes. Perhaps prior to the death of her baby, Lala's smile would have widened and her, what you want to know, would not have led to more probing while she plaited cornrows with such tenderness that her client would have started to doze off, her hair now being plaited in the land of dreams. Before the death of the baby, we might have said we were asking because we have seen the way he looks at her when he lands on the beach with a roar of the jet ski and the water only just rejoining behind him, the way she avoids looking up at the sound of this roar as every other pair of eyes on her stretch of sand does. Had we not been aware that she was wedded to another man, we might have told her, we would have taken this tone for her husband. Were we not aware that this tone sells his body to the tourist women on the beach, we would believe that this body is hers. So studiously does she avoid devouring it with her eyes in the way her client cannot help but doing. But this is not before the death of Lala's baby. This is after. So I've been talking to Sherry Jones. We've been talking about her novel, How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House, which is out in the UK from Tinder Press. Sherry, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you about How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Kate Moss is a novelist and was founder director of the Women's Prize for Fiction. Her latest novel is The City of Tears and her latest non-fiction book is An Extra Pair of Hands. But we're only going to be talking about those books very lightly at the end of the interview because we're actually here today to talk about the Women's Prize Trust Discoveries winner, which was announced today on the day that we recorded it. Kate, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. Lovely to be here. First of all, tell me what the Discoveries programme is. Well, it's a programme designed to uh, reach out and speak to people all over the country who might not think of themselves as a writer, who might not have ever picked up their pen. And this is part of the Women's Prize has always been about listening to women's voices, celebrating and honouring women's writing, but also the idea that many more people should be encouraged to write, that sometimes publishing has been a little bit narrow. And so it's our responsibility as a prize celebrating uh, writing by women to try to reach out and engage with people who don't necessarily see themselves as part of uh, the structure of publishing, if you like. So Discoveries, which is powered by NatWest and uh, supported by Curtis Brown and Curtis Brown Creative, we got together and thought, what can we do to really try to look for new voices? And of course, they can be any age, any genre, any type of person living anywhere. But we really wanted to reach out and say, what about you? What about you? Just why don't you share your work with us? And part of Discoveries is a mentoring program that Curtis Brown is providing. So even though we announced our one winner, Emma Van Straten, today, what we wanted to do was to make sure that all of the people who engaged and were long-listed and then shortlisted got some sort of support. So this is about building the authors of tomorrow. And what are these authors entering then? So this is about works in progress, is it? Yes, exactly. So our winner, Emma Van Stratton, and everybody else on the shortlist and the long list, they sent in uh, 10,000 words of a novel they were writing. So it's very much people at the beginning of their writing. It's not finished work. And part of what we wanted to offer was this sense of support, mentorship, being able to talk to agents, being able to talk to fellow writers in the same sort of position. So it is absolutely 10,000 words. And we'll, you know, we'll announce, uh, we'll call for entries for the 2022 prize in September this year. So it's very much about saying, you know, what we hear back, you know this, Neil, from all the work that you do, we hear back all the time is, yes, but it's okay for people who know about publishing or who know somebody who work in publishing. Mm -hmm. But most people, when they're sitting on their own writing, have no idea where to go to get any feedback. 
And this is part of what Discoveries was. And it's part of our charitable purpose, the Women's Prize Trust, uh, to really try to invest in supporting the writers of the future. So tell us something about Emma Van Straten, who's won the prize. Who is she? Well, the thing is, I mean, what, what is joyous about this is we don't really know who she is, um, because obviously the point is that she sends in her work. But what I can tell you is that she works at the V&A Museum and the inspiration for her novel to be, as it were, um, which is called Heartstring, came from um, her time working as a cleaner in her where she lived in her own block of flats in London. And so it's a really interesting novel. It's about infatuation. It's a love story. It's about Alice, who's a cleaner, and her obsession in a way with the with one of the couples that she cleans for. It's written in the first person, which in it's very compelling. It's quite unsettling in many sorts of ways. It's very modern, I would say, but she's a very, very wonderful writer. You know, there, there were many sentences in the, that first 10,000 words where that just sang and leapt off the page and there was one which was something washing snapping seagull bright and I remember reading that thinking oh that's a beautiful description of what that's like to see you know a sheet in the wind so she you know we don't know much about her but the other thing that is wonderful is that Lucy Morris who is one was one of the judges and who is an agent at Curtis Brown has already signed her as a client because she's so sure that this novel has, you know, is going to really find great favour with readers. So I'm looking forward to meeting Emma. Um, we don't meet any of them, obviously, and we only have their tiny biogs that they write about themselves. So you mentioned that the Discoveries programme for next year, the entries will be open in September. What do people have to actually do to enter? Well, I mean, everything is on the Women's Price of Fiction uh, website and also the Curtis Brown Creative website and Curtis Brown. And we will do the call for entries in September. And it's a long reading process. This year, there were nearly two and a half thousand entries. And obviously, there's a takes a lot of reading, a lot of sifting. That's 10,000 words. And everybody who enters deserves to have their work read properly and taken seriously. So it takes quite a, a long time, obviously. But all the rules and regulations and what people need to do, they're on the website and, and that will be updated and ready to go in September. This is the uh, this year is the 25th anniversary of the or last year was the 25th anniversary of the Women's Prize, which is why this this programme has been launched. Obviously, the um, the winner of this year's Women's Prize will be announced on the 7th of July this year. Remind us again why the Women's Prize was set up in the first place. Well, you know, it, it's funny in a way that I, I'm still talking about that because it's so successful and it has made such a difference to so many readers and so many writers careers that it's quite funny that I, I'm still asked about why it was set up because it kind of has earned its stripes I think in every every single way in terms of promoting reading and writing and engagement between readers and writers and all the educational and literacy and research projects we do around it but you know going back to the very early days it was set up because it was clear that despite the majority of novels that were being published in the UK in the early 90s being authored by women. And despite the fact that the majority of novels bought were and still are uh, bought by women, that fewer than 9% of novels ever shortlisted for literary prizes were authored by women. So it was clear that there was a kind of disconnect between what readers were doing and publishers were doing in a way and what the, uh, the system of honouring and valuing writing was doing. And I think a lot of that was to do with universities and who gets studied in universities, but also the very old fashioned idea that a male writer is neutral and a female writer writing about a woman is for women only. And so what we decided to do, having done a huge amount of research, was set up a prize that every year would honour and celebrate the very best 
of writing by women in English from all over the world. Huge diversity of voices in terms of genre and country of origin and country of habitation, if you like. And we just wanted to say, what about these books? Pay attention to these books. And the Women's Prize, I would say over its 26 year now, we're in our 26 year uh, history, has genuinely made a difference to the landscape. And the fact that people now think about how books are presented and also which books are seen as valuable, because that's what prizes are all about, you know, about the, the books that people will be reading in the future not just the books that people are knowing about today. So we're very proud, all of us who've been involved all these years of what the prize has done. And you only need to look at uh, Maggie O'Farrell who won last year for Hamlet to see the enormous difference that any prize can make to an author's uh, visibility and the opportunity for readers to find out about their work. And, and that's the point of a prize that more readers know about a particular brilliant novel. So I was reading back on the history of the prize earlier in preparation for this. And, you know, it's surprising to to look back and remember that there was a bit of controversy at the time. And there was, you know, the usual bores complaining about it over the years. <laughs> and so I, I did actually, you know, write down, is it still necessary as a question? But that does seem, it does seem ridiculous. Because as you've just said, the prize has taken on a life of its own. And it's such a big deal now. It's such a massive part of the literary landscape. So perhaps I'll ask you instead (laughs) what do you think has changed in publishing over the 25 years since it was first necessary to set it up well that I mean that yeah that's that's a lovely question Neil and exactly the right question because it is you know it is very strange that because the prize is so evidently successful it's very odd that it's always kind of being questioned about its existence Mm. when you say well look at the sales figures, look at the people who are engaging, you know, that that answers itself. And I do also think that we should always celebrate the best. You know, there are many, many prizes and any prize that celebrates the very best in writing is important in these times in particular. What I think has changed in publishing is that the dialogue around who gets published, who gets promoted, uh, what is valued is much more open. I would say that in terms of women's writing, that that idea that women are left out of the prize system, in part because of the work of the Women's Prize, but not only, has really changed. So now people would always notice if there were no women on the shortlist. One of the, you know, the sort of triggers for the Women's Prize was the Booker Prize list of uh, 1991, when there was an all-male list, but nobody noticed. It wasn't that there was an all-male list because the judges have the right to choose the books they want. But it was more that nobody noticed. And many of us said, can you imagine if they'd put out a list of all women? People would have seen that as political, but they don't see it as political if it's all men. So I think all of those things now in publishing are very much more talked about. You know, it's everybody's kind of aware of it. I think the thing that is happening now, and it's long, long overdue, is an awareness of how... Few black writers and writers of colour have been involved in being given the same sort of opportunities as their white female and male counterparts. And also the understanding that many black writers and writers of colour have been published if they talk about their own natal or biographical experience, but are not given the opportunities to write in any other area. So I'm thinking, for example, of the amazing writer Dorothy Coombson, who is a fantastic crime writer. And it's wonderful now starting to see many more diverse voices being published, not just in the area of race, but also in terms of class, in terms of disability, in terms of faith, uh, in terms of geography. So I think that that 
stranglehold of London and of a certain sort of publishing is little by little breaking down. And I think that all the publishers that are engaging with this and all the agents, it's a really good thing. It, it's been a long time coming and it needed to happen a lot longer ago. But I think this is really, really healthy because in the end, the reader benefits. We all as readers, the wider the range of stories we're offered, and this is what we saw in Discoveries, 73% of the people entering Discoveries were people from outside of London. And there were people writing in all genres, defining themselves in terms of all types of class, all types of person, all types of ethnicity. And this is the readers, all of us benefit because the wider the range of voices, the better. And I think this is something I was also going to raise in that, you know, I look at the Booker Prize and it's 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 obviously still explicitly that genre. And it is a genre of literary fiction. And obviously, as you said, most authors of novels are women. Most consumers of novels are women. But probably roughly half of that pile of novels that's consumed by those women are something we would call commercial fiction you know, or what used to be called you know, pejoratively chick lit. Um, obviously also genre fiction, as you said. And The Woman's Prize definitely seems to be more Catholic in terms of the, you know, the selection of books that are chosen for the long list and short list. Yes, I mean, I, I'm glad that you feel that um, as an observer. You know, what I say every time with a new set of judges is what you're looking for are novels that make the hair on the back of your neck stand on end. And we're not looking for, um, you know, it should never be people from the outside thinking, oh, they look brainy because they've chosen this, or they look less brainy because they've chosen that. It has to be this absolutely straightforward thing that these are the texts, never mind the person, never mind how you know successful they've been or how well the novel's done or any of these things. It's simply got to be about the words on the page. And so all genres are welcome. And women write very, very strongly in crime and domestic fiction and all of these things. And there is sometimes an inherent snobbery about books that sell a lot. The you know, There's always this strange correlation that if a book sells a lot, it can't be well written. Well, we all know that that's absolute nonsense. So within the Women's Prize, you know, it's partly about the judges that are involved, but it's also partly about the ethos of the prize. And this is certainly what Discoveries was about, was saying, doesn't matter what genre you're, you're writing in, does it work? Does it make us as the judges and the readers to come think, I must keep turning the page? And that's what the Women's Prize has always been about, you know, incredible stories from diverse voices from all over the world. And, you know, all of these labels, literary fiction, domestic fiction, crime, historical fiction, which is obviously my thing, they're just ways of categorising to help readers find books, but they don't mean anything, really. All that matters is, do you love this book? Do you want to keep turning the pages? And to finish it off then, I just wanted to ask you to tell us something about an extra pair of hands, which is, it's been a while since you've, you've done some non-fiction. So yeah, tell me something about what this one is about. Yes, An Extra Pair of Hands is a memoir, my memoir. We call it A Story of Caring, Aging and Everyday Acts of Love. And it was a book that I really thought about hard about whether I wanted to write. I'm not a, a confessional writer, but I've been for, on and off for the past 12 years a carer. I'm an author, so obviously I can be a carer around my job. A lot of people can't do that. They have to give up their jobs to be a carer. But at the same time, it's 
a story that I felt was important to tell. There is a lot about me as a writer in the book. There's a lot about me as a reader in the book, uh, because if you are a carer, often you don't really sleep through the night. You've always got one ear open. And so I do a huge amount of reading in the small hours, as it were. But I really wanted to write this book, which is a tribute to three extraordinary people, my, my father and my mother, both of whom now are gone, and my wonderful mother-in-law, Granny Rosie, for whom I'm a full-time carer, uh, because actually there are 30 million of us unpaid carers in the UK. We are hidden everywhere in plain sight. And I very much wanted to tell my story. I'm only speaking for myself, but also to try and help make caring more visible. It's Carers Week as we record this. And the strapline this year is making caring visible and valued uh, because many, many carers don't feel that they have any support. There are many people carrying on their own. They don't have uh, the resources to be able to carry on working and all of these sorts of things. So I wanted to raise my voice along with all the other 13 million carers and say, please start paying attention to this. Uh, social care needs to be sorted out. And it was it was a very different sort of book for me to write, obviously, because mostly I'm making stuff up in my fiction. You know, uh, City of Tears came out in January and I can't really believe an extra pair of hands has just come out. And it's the second book I'm publishing in lockdown. <laughs> And that's and I, I'm missing meeting readers, but the reaction to an extra pair of hands has been extraordinary. And it's been a wonderful thing to do to realize for many, many carers who are in the same position as me, how important books are and how important reading can be when you can't really get out as much and you're very much confined to a smaller space or looking after somebody and you can't really leave them. Books are the thing that give many of us who are carers the glimpse on the outside world. So an extra pair of hands has been, you know, it was something I wrote during lockdown and I'm really enjoying talking to people about at the moment, um, you know, in between doing Women's Prize and we have the Women's Prize shortlist virtual digital festival next week and obviously discoveries today. So I'm just juggling all these things. <laughs> so I've been talking to Kate Moss. We've been talking about the Women's Prize Trust Discoveries Programme, the winner of which Emma Van Straten was announced today. Also, again, to say that the awarding of the Women's Prize will be on July the 7th. And we've been talking about an extra pair of hands, Kate's book, which is out from the Welcome Collection. Kate, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Been lovely to see you, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.